I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canada and the United States have agreed to keep the border closed until August 21st. Should we make the extension to close the border even longer? The scandals around Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the WE charity continue. Would you get on a plane and travel to Disney World during a pandemic? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, it has been reported this morning, as we said, the U.S.-Canadian border going to remain closed for another month. Here's what uh, the Bloc Québécois leader had to say about the borders. It's quite simple. As long as opening the borders appears to be a threat on the health of Quebecers and Canadians, it should remain closed. They are still deep in it. And we have to remain very careful. We are speaking about the health and lives of many people here. So this, the border should remain closed as long as it is unsafe to open it. All right, let's bring in Colin Furness, Assistant Professor, Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, thank you. I guess nobody, can you be surprised with this announcement? No, pleased, obviously. I'm not surprised. It's it's the sort of thing where, actually, it makes sense for us to be talking longer term. It makes sense for us to be talking about how this is going to have to stay closed until next year so that we can wrap our heads around that. But I think diplomatically, we tread lightly with our neighbors, uh, and I think showing them that we're, re- we're actively reviewing this every month is part of that game or part of that dialogue. But hmm. it, this is not something we can change anytime soon. Uh, obviously, we hear of a telephone call going on between the Prime Minister and the President of the United States regarding this. What do you think was said? What do you, how, how, do you, how would you feel they would discuss this? Or is it just I'm all told, science at this point? Well, I'm told it didn't come up directly in the, in the conversation. It would be tricky because I think there's a certain level of denial in the White House about the true state of the situation. And I'm not sure how you have a conversation about, hey, we need to keep this border closed or closed-ish. I think this might be, might be a better way to, to say it. And I think that if I were in that seat, if I had to have that conversation with Mr. Trump, I think I would point out that we're we're letting trade through as much as we can because both sides need that. We need to eat. Uh, we, we're the biggest customer. That has that show has to go on, and it is. And the only thing that we're really trying to not do is non-essential tourism business travel. Uh, and I think that's a really important point to make. How is this playing in the United States? Because uh, obviously we're doing better than the U.S. is when it comes to controlling the, the, the pandemic. So uh, does, does President Trump in the United States understand, no, 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 we don't want you in as opposed to us coming down there? The threat is from the United States, not from Canada. Yeah, I, you know, I think we, we tend not to figure on the radar screen all that much. Whenever I look at a map of North America, it, it's kind of astonishing how Americans don't notice us, but they don't. Mm. And right now, that's actually probably a good thing. I, I can't imagine this is a major issue for them at this at this stage of the game. Um, if we say bellicose things, if we say things like, we're scared of you, we don't want you, that might make some headlines. And, and I don't think any of us really want to convey that. We all have friends, colleagues, family members, uh, straddling both sides of the border. And what's going on there is awful. And so I think it's just really important that that message be conveyed to them every way we can, that you are our friends, we're watching in horror, we're with you emotionally, and we need to keep the border closed to keep this thing contained. 
So let's get back to what is getting through. You talked about essential services and such, uh, but, but what about uh, people and citizens going to and fro? How free of movement is that or at all? For example, we heard that uh, Disneyland, uh, sorry, Disney World has reopened in Florida, oddly enough, as their numbers spike. Are Canadians flying to Disney? Well, they're allowed to. Uh, Canadians are allowed to go wherever anyone will have them. And I don't think that's great. I think it's setting a poor example. Uh, If we're not letting people in, and we shouldn't, uh, we should be keeping our people home as well. And the dangers, obviously, are are the same when someone comes back. Are we supposed to self-quarantine? Yes. Does everyone do it? No. Do we get COVID cases from people coming into the country? Yes. That's we clearly understand all of that. So I wish we weren't. I wish that we uh, had rules here in Canada that said, you know what, please just stay home. But there's some good exceptions. I mean, I I have no tolerance for tourism and business travel because we we don't need those. But we do need uh, family unification, for example. So we have narrow exceptions right now. So you can go to Disney World, but if you have a fiancé here, you can't come and visit them. So and I think I, that's I think what a lot of people, I think that's, Colin, what a lot of people are having a problem with. Uh, our borders are supposedly closed, uh, at least the land, the, the land borders, to only essential services, yet we can jump in a plane and fly to Disney with we, if we want, as long as we wear a mask. Yeah, That's not this a closed is, border. It's not. No, and no one's ever really said closed. I mean, something like 200,000 people crossed the land border into Canada from the U.S. last week. That's a lot. Now, most of that is commercial. Most of that is trade. And given the numbers are that high, we're doing a pretty good job of keeping the genie in the bottle. We haven't had giant outbreaks from that large number of people. We need to, we need to keep it under control. And, and definitely no trips to Disneyland. It's, it's, I think it's wrong. Even if it's against the rules, to me, it's clearly wrong. I want to be able to see extended family members be able to reunite. I want to be able to see long-term couples and fiancés, people who can't prove that they're common-law, be able to visit each other and see each other, because this is not really a month-by-month thing. This is a long-term thing, and so we should be planning for long-term and emotional support for people who need that. So is it obviously difference at, uh, a difference at land borders as opposed to airports? I mean, if, what if we loaded up the car and we w- drove to the border and said we're heading, you know, we're drive, we're going to cross over uh, the border and, and drive to Florida to go to Disney? Would we be allowed in? As far as I understand, the answer is yes. And in fact, most of the crossing is going on via the land border. There's much less air traffic. So, so yes, that, that's my understanding. And I would, there's, there's no amount of money you could pay me to make that trip right now. Yeah. Be, all, all travel outside the country is dangerous. And, and doing it in so, a car, which would take a few days, would be, I think, crazy. I agree with you 100%, Colin, but isn't this really mixed messaging? Because, again, we're hearing that the borders are closed, but yet we can still go in. Uh, is it closed maybe for uh, uh, for Americans coming here as opposed to Canadians going there? Because obviously we've heard of situations where Americans have come over across the border, said they were driving through to Alaska and stopped in Banff for various places, uh, and they're getting harassed. So is there mixed messaging going on here about what you can and can't do? It does sound pretty confused. I I admit it really does, yes. And I think some clarity would be helpful. Clarity that says only essential travel and this is what essential means. We haven't actually defined explicitly so that people can have a simple understanding of what what essential travel means. I don't know how many Canadians are leaving and going on trips, um, on on discretionary trips. I hope it's very, very few, but I, I don't actually know that number. 
All right, Colin Furness has been with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto. Colin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, uh, Professor and Chair, Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professional or Health Professions, rather, Texas State University, and with us now. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. It's great, always great to be on. Your thoughts on uh, the continuation, uh, the extension of the border closure, I guess that's what it is, although we're trying to discuss and figure out exactly what that entails, uh, extended to August 21st. Are you referring primarily to us and... Between the U.S. and Canada. Sorry, yeah, between the U.S. and Canada. No worries. You know, I think um, with what's happening in the U.S. with respect to uh, massive community spread and surging going on, in in particularly the Southern Belt, I think it's probably a uh, smart move just to try to help those countries that might be experiencing lower caseloads and and a slowing down of what's going on in those it's, it's a bit ironic to sit here and see that, um, you know, the U.S. is being kind of put on alert with respect to travel. But I think countries are going to have to do what they have to do to try to help uh, keep that caseload down and that positivity rate down. You know, we're even seeing some of that within the states where some states are now kind of worried about, for example, Texas coming, you know, traveling into New York and things like that. So unless we get the pandemic and the community spread somewhat more uh, flattened back down to where we were in April, March and April, I think we'll continue to see that that um, going on. Are you surprised that uh, Disney opened its park in Florida with this going on? Yeah, I am a little bit, especially in Florida itself. As you know, it's you know they I think they had over 15,000 cases the other day and they're cooking pretty hot just like some of the other states. Yeah, I think probably, and again, I don't know the specific uh, information around that. They probably had a plan, you know, to open weeks ago, and were working very hard uh, in a in an atmosphere where the cases weren't as bad, and then just, you know, unfortunately, bad timing that the date they set was just kind of one of the hottest weeks of the year. So, I wouldn't be surprised. I saw where Disney in um, where was it in in um, Japan. Uh, maybe Hong Kong yesterday, Hong yeah. Kong, yes, where they had um, stopped admitting yeah. um, people from coming into into that particular location. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens in Florida. Uh, we've certainly seen the path that this has taken through the United States, uh, start, starting with the more northern states and, and the trouble that New York had had and such. What are your thoughts about where the South is right now and and how critical are the next couple of weeks? I, I think we're already at critical status. I mean, from the past, I'd say, three to four weeks when we knew that those uh, caseloads were going up and now we're seeing, uh, you know, what typically lags, the hospitalizations and things like that are also starting to spike in certain areas of the Sun Belt. I think we're already there. I mean, I think especially in the massive urban centers like Houston and uh, Dallas and, and even in Austin, uh, I watched our local news this morning in Austin here in Texas, and they were uh, pushing ICU limits on a daily basis now. So I think we're there. Uh, and I think until we get compliance back to where we were with masking and distancing and and potentially um, limiting certain types of, of establishments from being open, especially if we're not going to adhere to masking and other types of precautions, uh, then we're there. We're definitely in a situation now where 
you need to expect that anyone you come into contact that they could be carrying COVID because that's just it's just that serious I think now. What is the mood in the South now? Because you know, for many months, it, you know, this was a hoax and, and this, that, and the other. Are, are people taking this more seriously now? God, I hope so. Um, I don't know. You know, when I look out across the landscape and, and not only looking at the media, but just interacting with friends, family, colleagues, and, and also others that don't know me, the anxiety is real. I, I think I think you have some extremes of people that still want to be over this and want to move on. And then you have those who are on the other extreme where they're totally paranoid and um you know, super anxiety ridden over this. And I think where we need to get is somewhere in the middle yeah. so that people understand that we need to follow the evidence, the research around masking and distancing and all the things you continue to hear us scream about. And again, I'll keep saying it. I don't know when we got to a place, not just in this country, but other places where we don't listen to expertise and evidence. I mean, it's the basis of science. It's hypothesis testing. We're not always perfect, but we're trying to follow the best evidence as we go. And it just distresses me. And I know a lot of my colleagues that people just dismiss it. Um, I, I, I don't know how to get there mentally, why people do that. And I hope we can figure it out sooner than later. For the, uh, it, the the problems that we're seeing now, the hot spots we're seeing now, is this about them opening too soon, and do you see another backtrack, another closure coming? Well, I think it's, I think you know, that's a complex question to, to really get into the weeds, but I think it's a really bit of everything, uh, both opening a little too soon. Again, I am not an adamant we should have stayed closed forever. I think we can open carefully, but we must follow these precautions around masking and having mandates for masks mm-hmm. and around distancing and, and, you know, not doing things if you don't have to do it. You know, you don't have to go hang out for hours and in places if you don't need to. And so just trying to be a little bit more self-disciplined. And I think the messaging, again, it's very complex. I think the messaging a month or so ago around Memorial Day, maybe six weeks now, Uh, at least in Texas, uh, speaking about Texas, I just don't think it was there. And so every county, every city kind of did their own thing. And I just think if we don't get a national strategy in place, uh, we are in for a long haul here in the U.S. Because, as you know, it's kind of become divisive. It's become, um, you know, me versus them. And it's, it's public health, for God's sakes. It is not... It is not anything but a health issue uh, to those of us in that area. It's it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. And I think if we continue down this road, you very you you may very well see uh, closures again. I mean, let's look at Texas again, a red state, or at least leaning heavily red. And uh, Governor Abbott has already you know went kind of against what you might think he would do by mandating masks. Um, and I applaud him uh, greatly in that, you know, that that took some political backbone. And if we can't get past that with respect to just following public health rules and precautions, then I do think the governor, unfortunately, and others may have to pull the trigger on at least some, some facet of going back to partial closures or more and more uh, you know, restrictions around what we're enjoying in the kind of in the current state. Dr. Rodney Rohde has been with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Doctor, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck down there. 
Thanks so much. Same to you. Take care. So we've been talking about how uh, the border with the United States, the, the closure has been extended to uh, August 21st. Uh, we've been talking about how there's an, a massive spike in cases in the southern United States, including uh, the state of Florida. Yet uh, Disney has decided to open the gates to the Magic Kingdom and uh, obviously under strict protocol and very stylish masks, I might add, uh, they've decided to move ahead. Uh, this as Florida, the state of Florida, is recording record numbers of, uh, of cases of COVID-19. To talk more about all of this, Barry Choi is with us, travel expert, and he's on with us now. Thank you, Barry. Hope you're doing well. I'm good. I'm good. So, Barry, if a Canadian family wants to go to Disney, can we do that? Right now, you can can fly there. You can't try, but you can fly there. So, uh, what do you mean by try? So, if we fly, will we have trouble getting off or on the plane or crossing customs or because no problem, right? It's it's just you can't drive. So the land borders are closed, and that's where a lot of confusion comes with Canadians. You hear about like you know, Jeff Trudeau was just saying we've closed borders for another thirty days, but you can still fly to many places in the U.S. And there's still quite a few um, airlines, obviously significantly fewer than before. But you could definitely fly. So uh, there seems to be the restrictions uh, surrounding land borders, but not so much flying by air. Why do you think, why one, why the other, uh, not the other? Why do you think we are where we are? You know, I, I think um, the real reason at the beginning was, you, you know, you got to keep some travel open borders to a certain extent. There are still some essential travel uh, purposes for various reasons. You can't just shut off countries and airlines completely. Uh, but I think we've all learned already the definition of essential travel has uh, become very loose in the last couple of months. So uh, when we get there, uh, for example, if we decided to load the family on the plane and fly to Orlando, would we have to quarantine for 14 days? The U.S. doesn't have any foreign quarantine from what I understand right now. Uh, that said, if you're when you come back to Canada, you do need to quarantine for 14 days. For anyone leaving the country who's returning to Canada, you must quarantine for 14 days. That applies to residents and visitors. So your vacation is, is an extra two weeks longer than perhaps what you would have planned. That's exactly what I tell people who are thinking about leaving the country. It's like, hey, if you've got a month off or if you can work from home comfortably for two weeks when you get back, then sure, you might want to consider it. But at the same time, how badly do you need that vacation right now? So what are your thoughts as a travel expert, Barry, of Disney swinging open the doors now? Yeah, here's the funny thing. I love Orlando. I love theme parks. You know, Orlando's one of my favorite And they places. do it right. There's no two ways about it. I mean, Disney has everything covered. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, I personally like Universal Orlando Resort a little bit more, and but Disney is a magical experience. You know, when you played that music, I did think about the fireworks. I did think about the last time I was there. But when I read the news, I could not believe it, especially you've talked about the rising numbers of COVID cases. Like, what? I don't know what the last count was, but when I last checked, it was over 15,000 a day. And to me, it's like unbelievable it's like do they not realize what's going on here like maybe it's it's uh, not the best idea um but from a business perspective and i'm not trying to justify this but obviously disney is losing millions of dollars for every single day they're closed so so there's always money involved what about other disney parks california or even other parts of the world Hong Kong opened up, uh, I think, last month, and because Hong Kong had relatively low cases. But the joke is, and I don't know if a lot of people realize this, Hong Kong had a, had a minor spike of COVID cases. I'm yeah. talking about 100 people. And they shut down everything. They shut down the schools. They closed uh, yeah. Disney Hong Kong. They are taking it very seriously. Um, so what that tells me is the government, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, is how the government handled things. 
Hong Kong has seen what SARS did in the past, uh, how it affected China, which is obviously their bordering neighbor, and they don't want an outbreak. You know, I hate to say it, but they just look at what's going on in the U.S., and why would any country want that right now? Are you surprised that Disney doesn't, I mean, again, the, the companies have their own protocol over and above what country they they uh, they operate in. I mean, if all of a sudden they have to close a Hong Kong Disney or Disney's Hong Kong uh, park, wouldn't as a as a corporation, you say to yourself, well, you know what, maybe this isn't a good idea and what applies to one park would apply to the rest. I think it depends on how you look at it. You, people don't realize, like, I'm pretty sure Disney Hong Kong is, is a franchise, so it's not actually owned yeah. by the Disney Corporation. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to look at things locally. I don't doubt for a second there's pressure coming from a, from politicians, maybe board members. We already talked about how costs are involved. Um, I also have faith in Disney in the sense that they will go out of their way to make sure physical distancing in place. I, I don't doubt for a second they're going clean. They've closed off things where physical distancing is not possible. But what I am concerned about are the people following the rules. Uh, you know, we look here in Hamilton and Toronto, people are, you know, maxed out on the beach. And again, we talk about 15,000 positive cases in, in the state of Florida, and people are still rushing to go. Like, to me, it seems insane. But, uh, you know, I've quickly learned that our thoughts on certain things may differ from what people think about it in the U.S. What about Disney World in California? Uh, Disneyland over there, I believe it's still closed. Uh, I, I think right now. Or sorry, Disneyland, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, from what I understand, they're still closed. Only Disney World is open, and to be clear, Disney World only has two of their four parks open right now. It's right. just Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom. Um, I don't know what the decision was behind that. I'm assuming it's just they haven't prepared the other parks for yet. I will say that those two parks, based on my experience, it's a little bit easier to social distance. Uh, I don't doubt for a second that they're controlling the crowds. Uh, I was reading about some of the things they they did do. Uh, Normally, if you've ever been to Disney World, they have timed parades, which which, uh, generates huge, huge crowds. Uh, where people are physical distance, so they've eliminated that. They're having pop-ups. There's no more character greets where you would get in close contact, long lines. Uh, so again, I, I think Disney is definitely trying, but kind of like what you're saying, it's like, like, does it make sense to open this? Uh, um, probably not, but there's always money at play, unfortunately. Uh, and obviously, these parks are opening at a reduced capacity. That being said, even at a reduced capacity, is there demand? I mean, uh, do people still want to go? I guess they do. <laughs> You know what? It's kind of crazy because presumably, obviously, there's not many visitors from uh, overseas, even Canada. I'm sure there are a few. Um, But, you know, you look at the state of Florida and how excited people were to go to the bars. You know, I've got a few friends down there. Uh, You see the pictures from CNN and other media organizations. So I think a lot of visitors are from within the state or neighboring states. And and I think a lot of people are are excited to go. Um, I think they're just tired of COVID. And and I don't want to say it, but, you know, maybe they're just not taking it seriously. Uh, And they got to understand that Disney now is not the same as before. With all the new rules in place, uh, it's not the same experience. And that, to some people, that may not matter. There, there's another valid question. I mean, could this actually harm the brand more than help it in the sense that, excuse my dog, in the sense that when they get there, it isn't the same magical experience. 
I'm going to assume right now the people going to Disney are some serious hardcore Disney fans. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like eh, eh, you know, the state of Florida could be, be sinking and they would still go to Disney World. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I think people who who have dreams about Disney and are, you know, it's a once in a life temptation, they're probably going to hold out. They're probably going to be smart about it and, and sit on it. Um, but keep in mind, you know, there's a lot of local discounts. There's a lot of people who, yeah. residents of Orlando or the state of Florida, who have seasons passes that they've already paid for and they're like well if i've already paid for it i might as well take advantage of it because now it's open again um so it's, it's a whole new world and again you know i every single time i read the news of what's going down south bus i can't understand it but maybe i sometimes i feel maybe i'm the one who, who who's uh, in the wrong here i don't know mm. so uh we've talked about uh, air travel uh and crossing borders versus land which it's, it's obviously seems to be easier via the air and those options are available what about traveling to the caribbean or any mm-hmm. islands the caribbean islands it, it, what's your advice there is are there options there yeah you know what i like about the caribbean is this COVID hasn't really affected uh many of the caribbean islands so, so a lot of your listeners may not realize that uh, Canadian tourists were already going back down to Cancun, to Mexico, certain sunny destinations. Again, that quarantine is in place when you come back, to be clear. Uh, so people are enjoying it. I, I really like what some of the islands have done. You know, one good example is, is the Bahamas. You know, if you were to enter the country, you have to pass a COVID test within uh, five days of arriving. So you basically get the proof, you upload it, the government sees it, you land, no problem, right? Uh, so you can go if you want. Uh, the nice thing about the Bahamas is I was just reading, they haven't had a single COVID case since June 15th. So, you, you know, it's been almost a month, not a single reported case. A lot of other Caribbean islands, the same thing. Uh, but here's one thing a lot of travelers may not realize. Because the government of Canada still has a worldwide travel advisory, which states avoid all non-essential travel, there's basically no travel insurance provider that will cover you. So you're taking right. a huge risk anytime you leave Canada right now. Hmm, that's a very valid point, Barry, because we had that discussion at the beginning of all of this when people were starting to cancel trips. Yeah, it's crazy because at the beginning, uh, some insurance providers like, okay, listen, uh, you're covered because you're overseas, you're stuck, you know, it's happened, we'll bring you back, obviously. But if you're going to book a trip now, we're not going to cover you. Some people complained, uh, understandably so. But now it's like, again, there is literally a worldwide travel advisory from the government of Canada and every single insurance policy says if there is a travel advisory against the country you are not going to be covered so you know if you want to visit Afghanistan mm. guess what there's a travel yeah. advisory there's no way your travel insurance is going to apply and again people don't realize that right now so if you so would that apply that would apply to the United States as well since the border is cro- uh, closed would it not applies to every single country in the world right, right now because Canada yeah. has, uh, even though like we were talking about Caribbean and they're open still, uh, your your regular travel insurance wouldn't, would not apply. Uh, maybe there's one or two companies that still offer it, but I don't think there are many right now. Mm, interesting. Barry Choi has been with us, a uh, travel expert, talking about Disney opening. And again, the concern is uh, insurance. And not only that, when you get home, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Barry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Have a good one. News coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How will defending Hong Kong, its citizens, and its laws help defend Canada too? This is the topic posed in a uh, posed in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Gloria Fung is with the Canada Hong Kong Link and uh, is joining us now. Uh, Gloria, thank you so much for taking the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. 
I'm fine, thanks, and uh, thank you so much for having me. So we know the story of Hong Kong. Obviously, in 1997, it goes from British rule, UK rule, uh, back to China. Uh, the rest of the world was hoping that China would become more like Hong Kong instead of Hong Kong more like China. And then over time, what we found, obviously, is slowly China is 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 putting its 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 hands around the neck of Hong Kong. Uh, the latest laws to pass, which now state that if somebody in Hong Kong commits a crime, they could be tried in China. And we certainly know. Uh, what that all means you know this was a, a big topic has has you know at one time when this was first all suggested has the pandemic pushed this to the back burner is the world still as interested in this issue i i believe uh the the world is concerned about what is happening in hong kong despite uh the uh, coronavirus pandemic what happened is that uh, once this new security law has been implemented in Hong Kong, it does not only criminalize the Hong Kong people who are critical towards the government of Beijing and Hong Kong. It also criminalizes opposition to Beijing and Hong Kong of anyone on this planet, including you and me. Because for journalists who are critical or who has written anything critical uh, towards the policy of Beijing and, and Hong Kong, they could be uh, considered to have conducted uh, a crime uh, in Hong Kong. And it's pretty scary. Uh, therefore, you know, uh, just last week when the law was implemented on July 1st, I happened to talk to a few stakeholders of foreign policies of Canada. Uh, some of them are former diplomats to to China. And I was told by them that they have uh, equal concern about this new law because that means they won't be able to visit Hong Kong and China anymore. And I feel exactly the same because especially when I had the experience of witnessing how brutal uh, the China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is towards its people uh, during the Tiananmen massacre. I was mm. in Beijing during that time. I saw people, I witnessed people dying right beside me when they were shot by the military. And uh, so I would never underestimate the brutality of the Chinese Communist Party in cracking down the civil society in Hong Kong, as well as people like you and me who are, you know, uh, critical uh, towards mm-hmm. their policy. We certainly know the story of the two Michaels. Uh, are Canadians are Canadians safe in China and or Hong Kong? I don't think so. Uh, as a matter of fact, ever since last year, when the anti-extradition bill movement uh, developed in Hong Kong, uh, many Canadians uh, whom I know who were, you know, who have been living and working in Hong Kong, have already been telling me that uh, it's about time for they for them to consider returning to Canada because they do not feel safe in Hong Kong anymore with the deterioration of the autonomy, the rule of law, and also civil liberties, which China has promised the Hong Kong people for half a century, and now even. You know, uh, after we have gone through probably just uh, 23 years already, China is taking all its promises back. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party is turning Hong Kong uh, into a one country, one system 
just like any other Chinese uh, cities, uh, you know, before 2047. Uh, so it is very unfortunate because not only has the civil liberties been uh, jeopardized in Hong Kong, and there will be a massive assault uh, of the civil society following the implementation of this bill, it will also destroy Hong Kong as a financial hub in the Far East. Uh, just imagine we have hundreds of Canadian corporations uh, operating there. Uh, and we also have more than 300,000 Canadians living and working in this free society of Hong Kong. And now I think uh, all of them will have great concern about what is going to happen. Gloria, what can the rest of the world do here? Because it seems right now uh, the political stability in the world, we live in a very, very divisive world. We see certainly where the United States has gone on this. What should the rest of the allies do? How can we unite and face this? I I think uh, recognizing uh, this common threat from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the democracies of the world must be united together to confront the world's most expansionist dictatorial regime. Uh, Many people believe that China is very strong, but actually for people like us who understand what is going on inside China, China is not really that strong after all because its GDP is dropping and the, the unemployment rate is raising. And there have also been a lot of unrest in different parts of China. And, uh, and one of the major reasons why China wants to crack down on Hong Kong is to, prevent, is to prevent this kind of resistance movement from spreading to other parts of China. And therefore, we strongly advocate uh, our Canadian government to get united with our uh, allies, such as the Five Eye allies, uh, UK, USA, and Australia. They have all been doing work to uh, allow Hong Kong people under political persecution on the basis of the Political Opinion Participation Association uh, to uh, move to these various countries. So we urge our uh, uh, government to join force with the Five Eye Allies to strongly condemn the Chinese Communist Party from uh, breaking its promises with respect to the joint declaration. And at the same time, uh, we also urge our government to consider a safe harbor scheme, uh, similar to what our allies have provided to Hong Kong, to allow people uh, in Hong Kong under political persecution uh, to seek uh, protection in Canada. We can consider providing a comprehensive uh, Hong Kong special program to allow some of these Hong Kong people to uh, immigrate to Canada because after all, they share similar values uh, as Canadians and they have very good uh, English language proficiency and their IT management skills are the kind of skills that our job market is seeking. And actually we are competing with our allies for attracting this kind of immigrants uh, from Hong Kong so I think uh, it's, it really is a mutually beneficial, uh, you know, uh, approach to come up with a special program for Hong Kong people who are truly under political persecution. Of course, 
we should not all uh, we should not forget about the application of Minsky Law to sanction Chinese and Hong Kong officials who are engaged in the violation of human rights in Hong Kong and also China. And we should also prevent them from and their immediate families from entering into China and also freezing the assets here. After all, the world needs to take concrete action to say no to the Chinese Communist Party instead of just providing lip service. Otherwise, there will be more people like the two Michaels who will be arbitrarily detained in China. And we should also mention this is not about Chinese people, whether it's Canadian or abroad. This is about the Chinese Communist Party. Is there pressure on Chinese Canadians to tow that CCP line? Well, uh, you mean uh, who are critical or yes. supporting? Yeah. Yes. I, well, actually, as, uh, as one of the uh, actors, organizers of uh, uh, campaign opposing to the Chinese authoritarian regime in Canada. I have experienced uh, cyber attack, harassment, and also intimidation over the past uh, two decades. And even on August 17 last year, when I uh, co- collaborated with another group in organizing a rally uh, in front of the old city hall of Toronto, we were intimidated and harassed by a group of uh, international Chinese students, as well as members of the Chinese Communist Party's United Front organization. Right. They, when we sang the Canadian anthem, they booed us. And then when we tried to start marching uh, at downtown, they blocked our way. They even tried to attack some of our volunteers. So this kind of interference with Canadians constitutional rights of freedom of expression should be stopped. We need to take uh, action to prevent this kind of interference on Canadian soil by the Chinese Communist Party uh, in a timely manner. Gloria Fung has been with us, President of Canada Hong Kong Link, and you can read the latest column in the Globe and Mail. Gloria, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Uh, We have been talking about Huawei and its 5G network and China's involvement in that for an awful long time, uh, well before COVID-19, the pandemic hit. And prior to that, uh, the UK was all set to allow Huawei to be a part of its 5G network, uh, although maybe not necessarily the core. Uh, That has changed. And now they've decided to ban Huawei from its network and not only that, remove uh, what is there in 4G and 3G and such? Let's bring in Dave Masson, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace, and is with us now. Dave, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing fine, Scott. How's yourself? Good, thank you. Uh, again, this was uh, an about face for the UK. Initially, they said they were going to let some partial involvement with Huawei. What has changed here? What's different? Okay, what's changed is, um, as you rightly pointed out, uh, they originally were going to lie them in, um, not in the core of the network, and there was going to be a cap on the amount of the network they could cover. I think it was 35% would be the cap. Um, and that was on the advice of um, um, the National Cybersecurity Centre, who are the main advisors to the British government on using Huawei in 5G. What changed, however, um, was the fact that the Americans basically put a, a trade embargo on allowing Huawei access to uh, the chips, the chipsets, the microprocessors that 
using all their equipment. They've stopped them from being able to source those, uh, that, that equipment within America. And if they can't source those chips, which are very reliable chips, and everybody knows about them, they're going to have to get them somewhere else. And in Britain, they basically said, well, if we can't now, if Huawei can't now guarantee their, their semiconductor chip supply, then we can vet properly their actual equipment. It's no longer we, 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 it's no longer trustworthy because they cannot access good quality chips from the Americans anymore. And that effectively turned the table over and has led to, as you just said, the British government saying that basically Huawei won't be part of Britain's 5G network. And in fact, their equipment has to be out of the existing 5G network now by 2027. So wouldn't it. they have seen any of that coming, Dave? I mean, wouldn't that have all been part of the deal? Um, part of the deal? Well, uh, clearly... Like, in other words, if the UK decides they're going to go through with this, they know that there's going to be limitations when it comes to the other allies, and sooner or later, that door is going to close. Did they not realize that? Doesn't look like it. Um, I must admit, uh, I hadn't uh, envisaged that the Americans would uh, basically say to Huawei, and also ZTE, another big uh, Chinese company, you can't, they, they basically said to American manufacturers, you can't sell these chips to, to China anymore. That's basically what they said. And basically, <laughs> took Huawei out of the picture by doing that instead. Um, clearly, it's uh, it was the, I, would, I wouldn't say, it's not exactly the final nail in the coffin, but it's quite a major nail in the coffin. It basically said, for, for Britain's security advisors, they said, look, we just, we just can't trust their equipment anymore because they can't access good quality equipment. Um, the British security advisors have always had issues with Huawei equipment, not in terms of security and all that spying business, but just from the fact that it's cheap and not necessarily the best quality in the world anyway, but it's cheap. But now it just becomes insecure for them and said, well, it's not secure. If it's not secure, it's not going to be in, in uh, the 5G network in Britain. So there you go. So is this about politics and squeezing China out of the Americans trying to squeeze uh, China out of their industry in, in, in North America? Or is this about security? You know, it's economics, it's politics, it's security, it's cyber, it's absolutely everything. One thing it, what it definitely is, is what we call supply chain. It's all about securing your supply chain. This is a big issue in the cyber world that I'm in. Um, you need to know what all your equipment, your network's made up of. Where did it all come from? Where did all the widgets come from? Where did all the bits that went together to make the widgets to make the other widgets come from? Ensuring your supply chain so mm -hmm. you're not at risk from something way down the chain. And that's really what this is. It's a supply chain issue. And in Britain's case, it said we can no longer be sure about securing that supply chain, so we're not having it. We're not going to take that risk. What does that um, do to Huawei? How big a hit's that? Or is it? Well, to be honest with you, it's not going to be that big a hit for Huawei in Britain. I mean, the money they make in Asia and India and um, in Africa, this would be—it's it's, not—it's not—it's not much of a hit at all in terms of. Will money. India fo will <laughs> India follow suit? Do you think? Are other countries? I mean, India is talking yeah. about it. Are they not? Yeah, India is talking about it. Compared to the amount of money they make in Asia in general, uh, losing uh, this part. Remember, they're only losing the 5G market. They're not—they're not actually losing the equipment that they put in for 2G, 3G, and 4G in the UK. That's not likely to be that's not at the case at this time it's not going to be a big hit for them in terms of money the big hit really is uh, its face its reputation its acceptability in the west that's really what's at stake here surprise canada hasn't followed suit here already considering the uh, recent talk, uh, tough talk from the prime minister in the last week or so well that's right um, there's a whole lot of issues going on between uh, uh, canada China, some of which revolves around Huawei uh, for different reasons, right? As, as we're all aware, 
Um, clearly, Canada's decided to, you know, let's wait and see what happens. Let's see what the Americans do. Let's see what the British do. Uh, we've already seen what the New Zealanders and the Australians have done. They said no. Ooh, I think it's two years ago now, back in 2018. They just said, no, well, we're not going to do this. Um, and so Canada's sitting around. We, we don't know what the decision's going to be. It's still to be made. I'm sure uh, the government will take advice from the Canadian Cybersecurity Centre and um, CSE and uh, our allies and all the rest of it, and then we'll come to a decision. But in some ways, the decision's actually already been made for Canada. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we live in a very divisive world, Dave. Uh, will this unite us? Will we find common ground here within the Allies? Uh, by Allies, do you mean the, the famous Five Eyes? Allies? Yes. Or even those uh, beyond think, the Five Eyes. Uh, I think we probably will find some common ground. But curiously, when I said that the decisions may be already made for Canada, um, again, I was thinking in terms of supply chain risk, because obviously the Canadian federal government doesn't actually run the internet in Canada. It doesn't supply it, doesn't build it. doesn't. Build and those it. private companies have already announced they're not going to necessarily yeah, participate yeah, with Huawei. Yeah. So that decision's been made for them, really, hasn't it? That's, 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 that decision was made back in February, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in February, Rogers said, we're sticking with Ericsson. Rogers has got a long, long relationship with Ericsson. Bell then followed to say, we're going to use Nokia and Ericsson. Now, TELUS, for a wee while in February, said, no, we're going to go with Huawei but changed their minds uh, just over a few weeks ago. So the three biggies, they have already decided they're going to use two other companies, Nokia and Ericsson, uh, not Huawei. So effectively, there you go, decision's made. Are we better with one than the other? Does it just mean it's going to get more expensive? Uh, I believe uh, there's probably going to be a bit more expense involved. Um, is it one for the other? Um, you know, you should always be careful putting too many of your eggs in one basket. And obviously, there aren't that many players in the 5G world. I mean, there's Huawei, there's ZTE, there's Samsung, and then you've got uh, Ericsson and Nokia. So I suppose there's some diversity for uh, Canada in the fact that we're choosing uh, Ericsson and Nokia for the, uh, the three big uh, telecoms companies. Um, it's kind of weird to think that there aren't any other big players in the market. Strange, there isn't one in America mm. at all. We don't have one in Canada. I mean, we used to do mobile phones, you remember? Blackberry used to do all that yep. stuff. We don't have one here. And curiously, our providers are going to be two nation states who are much, much smaller in Canada, smaller in terms That is fascinating. Funnily enough, they've got that capacity. So that's what we'll be doing. Dave Masson is with us, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace. Dave, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. See you soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're, we're attacking all kinds of uh, angles and different storylines as we have for uh, several weeks, months uh, in regard to the pandemic. How has this changed relationships and sexual activity? Is technology helping there? Let's bring in Jess O'Reilly, sexologist, relationship expert, sex with drjess.com. She is with us now. Jess, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, great to hear from you. So how has COVID-19 changed how we have relationships or changed our sexual activity? Oh, we're seeing many changes. So, of course, we have the more obvious ones with regard to safety. So there was a long time where people were only dating online. And depending on the jurisdiction you live in, you may be, you know, moving out of your house. You may be in a bubble. And so people have been forced to connect digitally and this is really cool i think it's uh, the opportunity to develop some new skills and people are really taking advantage of it and on one hand that's a fabulous thing 
on the other, dating online and being online and looking at video screens is exhausting because not only are you looking at the person and it's so intense because there are no distractions. If you're in a restaurant, you have, you know, the waiter and all the people around you to mm-hmm. distract you. But this is a one-on-one intense conversation, but uh, conversation, but also you're looking at yourself while they look at you, which is highly distracting. So the way we've dated has changed. Um, I also see some other changes that, that can be positive. So discussion of health and testing has become more normalized. And I'm hoping that this destigmatization of talking about safety and sex and health outlasts the pandemic. Because if we can talk about hand washing and wearing masks and physical distancing with almost total strangers, hopefully we'll continue the conversation with our sexual partners to discuss STIs, condom use, regular testing, and emotional safety. You know, I'm thinking especially of the online experience, you know, where you look at the picture of the person who you're potentially dating and everybody's wearing a mask. How can you, how can you tell now? Um, so Something I, I'm guessing, about that. <laughs> what's that? There's something kinky about that. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yes, there is. Oh, my goodness. Now, Jess, my mind has gone wandering. Uh, I'll try to get back on track here. Uh, I can see this being obviously, you know, if you're in some sort of relationship or you were you were in a relationship, I can see how this could continue. It must be incredibly difficult for those who aren't in relationships uh, of every age group who are trying to find relationships. Yeah, that's true. However, we are seeing a shift to not just meeting people online, but also maintaining relationships online. So the apps have shifted. So it's not just about swiping so that you can eventually meet up in person, but they've actually created the built-in functionality on their platforms so that you can date right on the platform. So for example, Bumble has added badges so that you can indicate that you're open to a digital date. They've also added these question and answer sessions, as well as online speed dating opportunities. And what they're realizing is that young people in particular are not only using the apps to lead to an in-person relationship, but the relationship in and of itself can exist uh, directly on the app. Wow, this is amazing when you think a digital date. So you both go to your prospective room, you open up your laptop, and you have uh, maybe a dinner or a glass of wine, a drink, whatever, while you're like on a Zoom call kind of thing. Absolutely. And what I've been recommending to people is that you don't feel pressure to emulate uh, an in-person date online. You can do something slightly different. So, for example, many of the many of the local bars are hosting online quiz nights and trivia nights. So you could attend that together and then kind of just chat and debrief about it after. So it doesn't feel quite as high intensity. Or you could go to an online event. You know, DJs are hosting online parties. People like me are hosting online workshops. We're seeing online book launches, online art shows, online theater. You could attend those together so that you don't have to spend the whole time looking in one another's eyes on screen and having an intense discussion. What about the personal contact? I remember when the whole COVID-19 thing started and we started doing all of this, that that many were saying, will the hug ever come back? Will we ever be able to hug people again? What, what does this do to the to the, uh, the the physical, the touching part? I don't necessarily mean sexual, but, the, you know, the contact part of a of, of relationship. You know, that's such an important piece, the piece, because physical affection, of course, everybody's desire for it varies greatly. But we do have a rich body of evidence showing that just the 
act of physical touch can lower blood pressure, help to lower cortisol levels, increase oxytocin levels, improve cognitive functioning and memory, improve connection, all of these positive benefits that many of us are, are lacking. Now, I have seen articles online, uh, if somebody's in your bubble, or if you're looking to minimize risk, they talk about how you can still hug with a mask on, how you can hug from behind to reduce the risk of, you know, being face to face, nose to nose, mouth to mouth. But hopefully people are finding other ways to, uh, to offset the lack of physical touch. But I think it's an important conversation. And, you know, many of us are, are feeling touch deprived. So even those of us with partners, you know, we're not hugging our friends as we used to, you know, because, you know, Toronto or the GTA is such a multicultural area. Many of us greet one another in, in varied ways. You know, some of us, it's two kisses, one kiss on each cheek. Depending mm. on where you're from, it might be three kisses uh, from cheek to cheek to cheek. And we're missing those things. But we are going to have to adjust. And we've seen this. We've seen this in Quebec. We've seen this in France, Spain, across the globe, Italy, where they've had to adjust uh, some of these rituals that are part and really ingrained in their in their culture and ways of socializing, but we have to adjust to put our health first. Does uh, did the or does the COVID nineteen experience uh, take sexting to the next level? Oh, I mean, I you talked about digital does. dating. Is there <laughs> digital sex? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And th- you know, this was one of the first questions I was asked back in March when we were told to self-isolate and stay home and, you know, is doling out uh, so much advice and you know, suggestions around digital sex. But I always want to remind people that you don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with. So for some people, digital sex might just be flirting with, with words or gifts or images that are not uh, your body, but just things that you find sexy, like er- erotic art. For other people, it might be voice notes. So many of us are audio learners and audio learners are folks who tend to also be very seduced by auditory sound. So I just want to give credit for attaching the learning styles to your seduction styles to my colleague and my co-author, Marla Renee Stewart. So just to be clear, it's not mine, but she really talks about the fact that if you're an audio learner, you can be really moved by the sound of your partner's voice and it can kind of assuage concerns, reduce stress, and of course, turn you on. So people are starting to use voice notes. And I love this because it's not the pressure of, you know, hopping on camera and having sex, but you can still be flirtatious. You can still be playful. You can edit because you can, you know, try it once, give a 10 second voice note, but then if it doesn't work, you can erase and re-record. So there are so many options for digital play. What about security? Um, since we're talking about online stuff, how concerned do we have to be, especially if you're talking intimacy? I think you always have to be concerned. So, you know, I always suggest to people that, for example, if you are sending saucy images, maybe you want to leave your face out of it, even if you're sending it to someone that you fully trust, uh, however you define that, of course, they can lose their phone. They can leave their phone lying around. So you might want to leave your face out of it. Uh, I know people who will even, you know, kind of put in a fake birthmark or a fake tattoo just to disguise their bodies. I guess they think their naked body is quite recognizable. Hmm. Uh, And certainly there are apps that have additional layers of encryption rather than sending just in your messages. And I do suggest, for example, for, for couples that you have a separate app for the fun, kind of sexy, saucy play, separate from your messages where you might just be texting about the kids or that, you know, the kids might pick it up and see your phone. And I think it's nice to have kind of a, you know, just like you keep your bedroom as a sensual space, maybe you can keep an app that is just for the fun stuff.
Uh, what will relationships this all, what will your world be like post-COVID-19? Because we've talked about different angles. It's education, health, uh, industry, what have you. It, it, nothing's going to be the same. Are you concerned about, and we've even heard about how the kids being out of school, that affects their mental health. Sure. How concerned are you about, or, or what will a post-COVID-19 world look like in, in, in the world of, of relationships and sex? Well, I think we're going to see some shifts with regard to health tech. So, for example, we see that there's an uptick in virtual sexual health inquiries online. So we have apps in Canada like Get Maple, where you see a doctor online, and they've always had that kind of a high demand for sexual health inquiries, but they're seeing even more people looking for birth control prescriptions, renewals, uh, support with ED and other sexual health issues. We see apps like Let's Get Checked. Their use is also on the rise. So this is where they send you a package you you know, either pee on a stick or create the sample and you mail it back to them and they test for everything from, you know, testosterone levels to diabetes to sexual, sexually transmitted infections. And then you check your results online. So we're seeing that shift. Now, in terms of relationships, we're actually seeing reports of turbo relationships. So turbo relationships, meaning that you move in together to quarantine, but the time spent together feels much longer. And so it kind of just accelerates the relationship. I actually, I, there was a survey by an online dating platform, and they found that uh, many people, 63% are reporting strengthened relationships because they've lived together in close proximity during lockdown. A uh, similar number, 58% say that now, after being stuck together, they know that they want to be with their partner forever. And again, a similar number, 59% are saying that they feel more committed to their partner after managing the challenge of of the pandemic together. Um, So people are actually appreciating this quality time. I'm very hopeful that people have spent time investing in their relationships. And, And for singles, I see a whole new world opening up because You know, you can now, if you're going to date someone and you're not going to meet up with them anyways, you might as well date someone in Italy Italy or Romania. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, because if you're going to be online anyway, Tinder actually added the passport feature, uh, which allows you to date kind of all around the world. So I I think that, as I said um, in the beginning of this chat, that I think online and dating is no longer a means to an in-person relationship, but it can be the relationship in and of itself. And that works for people. COVID-19 and technology changing everything, uh, relationships and sex, uh, absolutely. Why not? Like everything else. Dr. Jess O'Reilly has been with us, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com. Jess, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. Great chatting with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Is that okay?